the reason why we're here this morning is this is the place where we're supposed to be. So I'm glad that you're here with us. We're going to read beginning in verse 24 to the end of the chapter, and then we're going to pray and certainly ask God for his help this morning. All right. Verse 24. But in those last days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time men will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Amen. May God give us understanding of his word. Let's pray. Father, it is such a privilege to sing your praise. And we just affirm the songs that we've sung, and especially the last one, all glory to your son. And so everything right now of significance for me, for me to be able to speak, for us to be able to think, to listen, to decide, to believe and obey, and to cherish deeply your love and your care over all our lives, all of that, God, rests entirely in your hands. So please help us now. May your spirit be our teacher. May your brilliance be acknowledged as you take pity on me and anyone who would ask for it now. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, this past Tuesday, the New York Times had an op-ed piece written by David Brooks, and David Brooks is is one of those people that I read from often uh, because, to me, he has a a good understanding of our times. Um, The article was entitled, Fighting the Spiritual Void, and what he was doing, he was making the case that all trauma and and the resulting post-traumatic stress disorders, for example, a trauma a military veteran can experience, or the trauma of a sexual assault victim, or the trauma of, of those who've been abused, all trauma, writes Brooks, has a moral and spiritual component to it, just as much as the psychological or the mental component. So this is what he writes. Wherever I go, I seem to meet people who are either dealing with trauma or helping others deal with trauma. In some places, I meet veterans trying to recover from the mental wounds they suffered in Iraq or Afghanistan. Sometimes it's a woman struggling with the aftershocks of sexual assault. Sometimes it's a teacher trying to help students overcome the traumas they suffered from some adult abuse or abandonment. 
He goes on. Medication can rebalance chemicals in the brain, but it can't heal the inner self. So as I was reading about this article, thinking through the truth of the overwhelming amount of people in our context, in our culture, who suffer from uh, PTSD, and thinking about the words of Jesus Christ in Mark 13, I said to myself, you know what, that's exactly what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 when he said, in the last days, and remember, we learned that the last days began with the earthly ministry of Jesus, we'll get to that in a moment, in these last days, people will be abusive, brutal, inhumane, treacherous, and dangerous. Many of the cruelties which can cause PTSD. But along with that, so I was thinking about um, David Brooks, I was thinking about Jesus, and I was thinking about Paul in the New Testament. Then Ralph Waldo Emerson's quote came to my mind. So I have a little black book where I keep quotes. And it's taken from Society and Solitude. And this is what he writes. Can anybody remember when the times were not hard and when money was not scarce? Now, he was being humorous there because this is what he was saying. He was pointing out that there never really was any good old days. I mean, every age and every stage in the world had darkness and had light. It had fears and had assurances, which then should stop the individual from believing that either fear or escapism or just you know, abandoning your responsibilities and taking away the, the house of cards excuses, you know, times are really tough, they're really scary, there isn't enough, therefore I should, should not do anything. I can't do anything what's needed right now because it's just too much. Now you apply that to what we've been learning thus far in chapter 13. The fallenness of the world, the pain and suffering in the world is never going to stop. Not as long as the clock of this world is ticking. So can anyone remember a time when there wasn't some war, some crisis, some terrible inhuman, inhumane acts, some kind oh, of, oh my God, this is so terrible, this has to stop. We can't go on like that. And for some people to say, you know what, this kind of feels like the end. It's so bad that it feels like the end. I was listening to a report from some of the people, the dear people in California. And one young man says, this feels like the apocalypse. House burning, fires everywhere, people have no place to go. Which drives one of the main points that we've been making in this chapter. Which, which is whether, you know, the point is, if we get the prophetic part of this right, we all get it, you know, perfectly nailed down. The one thing which binds the events in chapter 13 and a Christian's understanding of them is the response which followers of Jesus Christ are to make in their lives to the end, to the terrible parts of this world. And if you think about it, and you know your Bible, especially your New Testament, that's exactly what Paul says and Peter says and John says. Three apostles of Christ. So this is what they do. They speak of something about the end, some element about the end. And then they say, for example, 2 Peter 3, in light of what's going to happen, we are to live lives in such a way that brings attention to Jesus Christ, brings glory to Jesus Christ. And when you bring attention to Jesus and you bring glory to Jesus, you are going to have compassion on the souls of men and women. You're not going to hide away from the trouble. You're going to be right in the thick of it. We are to respond, if you would, appropriately to God's activity in human history. 
Listen to Matthew Henry way back when. Listen to what he says. It is more to the honor of a Christian by faith to overcome the world than by some monastical vows to retreat from the world. More for the honor of Christ to serve him openly than to serve him in hiding as if you could. In a phrase, we engage in God's world with compassion. We get our hands dirty by it, and we do not wash our hands from it, right? That's the idea. The end is coming in some way. We don't know know exactly when. It doesn't matter. It's a terrible world out there. We've got to engage it. Tim Keller, another pastor. This is more modern, 21st century quote. He's thinking through the implications of the gospel. Listen to what he writes. To the degree you grasp what Christ did for you and rest in the salvation he brought you, though he had every right to exclude you but did not, that is the degree which the same love will be reproduced by you giving that love to others. And you see, that's why the concern here of Jesus is far more pastoral than prophetic, so much so that Jesus gives exact pastoral care, doesn't he, in the conclusion there in verse 33 and following. So, so, yes, we are working hard to understand this chapter. However, one of the things we've been learning is the events are further apart than what they appear to be on paper, right? They have this kind of photographic-like dimension we spoke of last time. Some of the answers to the disciples' question in verse 2 has an immediate application. Some of it have, has kind of a midpoint application, And some of it has a much longer-term application that we can't quite nail down. And what we're really discovering then is that the end of all things is a reality. But it has a kind of like three-fold dimension to it in the same way we speak of our salvation, right? We say, I have been saved from sin's penalty. That's the doctrine of justification. I am being saved from sin's power. That's the doctrine of sanctification. And one day... I'm going to be saved from sin's presence. That's the doctrine of glorification. So when you read the words of Jesus here, in the same way you could say, the end has come, the end is coming, and the end will come. All of which is true in as much as the coming of Jesus was the beginning of the end, which the Bible teaches. This is Hebrews 9.26. He has appeared, Jesus, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Question, when did the end of the ages or the end of the time begin? When, if you would, did the clock start ticking? Answer, when Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So in one sense, the end is hovering all over chapter 13 and the events are unfolding throughout history until the end. In another sense, okay, we don't really know. So we have three points. I do know that. A lesson, a truth, a task. First, the lesson. That's verse 24 and following. If your Bible's open, and I sure hope it is. But in those days, Jesus says, following that distress, okay, immediately a person would ask, what days... And what distress? Well, in all honesty, there are primarily two schools of thought. One says Jesus is speaking about his second coming. The other says, following the natural reading of the text, those days are the days, that 70 AD that we talked about last time, when the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed and the city itself will be sacked. They each have arguments to make their points. For example, the words of Jesus, verses 24 and 25, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and so on. You see it there. 
Josephus, a Jewish historian, he records a similar occurrence which actually took place at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And as you look at the rest of verses 24 to 27, the connection to the early readers of the Gospels, these would be the first readers, if you would, it would have been a lot easier for them to make because this to them would have been understood as the day of the Lord predicted in the Old Testament, right? So even the language of Jesus, verses 26 and 27, is Jesus quoting from Isaiah, Old Testament, chapter 13 and chapter 24. And as you read those chapters, what you're going to find is there's so much um, figurative language that's being used here. Now, we know that Paul's first epistle to the church in Thessalonica Chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. We read it as a congregation last week. This is what he said. They're similar to Jesus. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Okay? Kind of wish that would happen right now so I wouldn't have to finish my sermon. But anyway... That's really similar to the words of Jesus in Mark 13 there, verses 24, 5, 6, and 7. The difference, though, is in the type of writing. Jesus' words are like Old Testament prophetic writings. They're rich in, in imagery. Yet, his context is not Paul's context. In Paul's context, no one is asking him a question about the temple of Jerusalem and when will it be, go, you know, when will it be destroyed. In Jesus' context, they are. And so Jesus' language, this is what the people say, is much more figurative than literal. Paul's words are very literal. Jesus' words, not necessarily. So what I want to tell you is I'm not trying to, you know, move away from my responsibilities, but the point that we should take away from here is what Jesus is saying is the, the stability and the routine of life before the end of the temple or at the end of time, whatever, those things will be shaken. The heavens, if you would, are going to be affected. The, the skies, the heavenly messengers are active. And there's no doubt that the foundations which make society are being shaken, tested. And then at the end, they're going to be removed. So I was doing my Christmas shopping Friday, as you should, or at least I should. And I was... Actually, you know, I was, I was doing Christmas shopping, but I was looking for myself. Isn't that great? Hey. <laughs> but, but there's a book that I just found out. Now, usually when I quote to you from a book, I've read the book. I didn't read this book, so we'll be careful. But the title of the book is Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. It's written by a, a senator named Ben, I think I'm saying his last name, Sass or Sassy. You might know, but listen to the introduction. Listen to it. This is perfect. He says, American life expectancy is declining for a third straight year. Birth rates are dropping. Nearly half of us think the other political party isn't just wrong. They're evil. We're the richest country in history, but we've never been more pessimistic. What's the despair? Or what's causing the despair? He goes on. It's not any better. Local communities are collapsing. Across the nation, little leagues are disappearing. Rotary clubs are dwindling. And in all likelihood, we don't know the neighbor two doors down. Work isn't what we hope for. Less certainty. Few lifelong co-workers. Shallow purpose. Stable families and enduring friendships. Life's fundamental pillars are in a statistical free fall. Right? Everything's being shaken. And he says, we can feel this. We can feel this. 
What are we to do? Now, I'm not going to tell you what his answer is. But the point is, here we are at this point in history, and for this guy and for a lot of people, it's like, oh, man, this is the worst it's ever been. This is the worst it's ever been. If you like, in some way, the day of the Lord is upon us. It's interesting. You know what he, one of his remedies? He says, America needs you to love your neighbor. But that was interesting. So the, the day of the Lord has come. It, it is coming and it will come. And when that final day comes, whenever it will come, God will intervene. This is the hope of Christianity. He's going to put everything right. He's going to establish justice for men and women who say they long for it. And the reason why the day of the Lord hasn't appeared yet, what does Peter say in, in 2 Peter? Or maybe it's 1 Peter. It's not because the Lord is slow to fulfill his promise, but because God is patient. He's not wishing that anyone should perish, but that everyone should repent. But what do we know? Well, the patience of God is not infinite. A day might be like a thousand years, but a thousand years isn't forever. The patience of God will run its course. There will be an end to it. And on that day, when God's patience ends, then the fullness of chapter 24 through 27, verses 24 through 27, it's going to be seen in all its fullness and all its finality. Listen to what one commentator said. God has a day scheduled on his calendars, on his calendars, when he will repay all the dirty deals and broken promises and the backstabbings of history, right? So God will take care of every evil deed, every sinister plot, every backroom heavy-handed injustice, and God's justice will satisfy himself and will satisfy his people. And so one of the points we should be able to glean from this is that this kind of pattern is the same throughout all of human history. And this is what I mean. There's some great evil done, some great injustice done, and it doesn't stop, but it seems to grow. And it seems like it's never going to end. And we look up to heaven and we say, God, why? And how long, God? And yet, what does God do? He steps in. He puts that particular evil to rest. And what do we find? Some time goes by, we rediscover that we live in a fallen world, fallen people, and evil rises again, and it grows, and the pattern continues. It seems like it's never going to end, but then it's brought to an end. But again, God steps in, and the pattern continues. I mean, if you just think about some of the great classical books that you read, evil is rising, it's in the shadows. And all of a sudden, like a great storm, it comes upon, and it feels like the end for everybody. But then God and good rise up and defeat it and put it away. But then the sequel, and it happens again and again and again. However, that will not go on forever. It's going to stop. The day of the Lord and all its fullness will come. Jesus Christ will come in the clouds. Jesus Christ will come with great power and glory. No doubt about it. The blessed hope, the personal, visible return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the angels, of course, will gather his people and all that. However, look at verse 28. Jesus then takes a few steps back from that and says, Learn this lesson from the fig tree or the lesson from the fig tree. And clearly, this is a metaphor that Jesus is using to help us. Metaphor number one, just as summer is near, that's verse 28, and it is at the door, verse 29. Now, 
here comes trouble. Look at verse 30. When Jesus says, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things happen. And the big question, of course, is what generation? And that's a big question because people go to war over this. Not literally, hopefully not. Churches split because of this. I always think of the church in Tennessee. Their sign. Welcome, everyone. And then it says, hymns only, King James Version only, premillennial only. But you're welcome to come in. It's like, what are you going to do with that? Right? So, on the surface, if you answer that question, it seems like you could get closer to the return of the king. Right? We're not going to pick a day. But hey, maybe we can pick a generation. Now, I don't think I'm going to solve that completely for you. But this is, this is what I think. I want you to think with me. First, here is some of what people say about verse 30. First, they say Jesus got his return wrong. He got the wrong generation. That's one thing people say. Thought it was 70 AD. He was off by a lot of years. Number two, you can explain this generation as the people listening to Jesus, as some commentators do, and all on the events taking place in the destruction of the temple. And so that's this generation. Or some people say that this generation is not a reference to a particular people in, in, in the, or a time frame or event, but it's being used symbolically over people. And this is the truth. Well, this is what they say is the truth. That these are people who have just kind of like an objective mentality about Jesus. So they're stiff-necked people who will be around when Jesus returns. And of course, the problem is that with that is, is there always have been stiff-necked people around in every generation. And then the fourth thing is that this generation, and so what happens is the people put in a time frame of their choosing. So they line up events in the world and, and certain nations and, and, they, and they think, okay, this is how I understand things. And they say, that will be the generation. We're not picking a day. But that will be the generation which will see the return of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but none of that helps me at all. Actually very confusing. So here's what I think. Hope your Bible's open. Verse 23, verse 29, verse 30, all speak to the same thing. For example, verse 23, be on your guard. I've told you everything. Verse 29, when you see these things happen. Verse 30, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So you ask from verse 30, what things? Well, Jesus has told them in the verses leading up to verse 30, right? Verse 23, the beginning of birth pains, signs were the things. The verses leading up to 29, signs from the heavens, those dramatic cosmic pictures, world shaking when you see those things, all leading up to the actual return of Jesus Christ? I don't think so. Because if you look at the text and you keep it in context, ask yourself, what is it that Jesus is describing here? When I do that, I'm able to say what he is describing are signs leading to his return. Not signs of his return. To not of. Signs leading to his coming, not of his coming. I mean, if Jesus is near, then he can't be here, right? Near is not here. Near is near. Not here. Verse, when you see these signs, the lesson from the fig tree, twigs, tender, verse 28, leaves come out. Summer's not here, but it's near. It's right at the door. 
In that same way, you'll know that I'm near. Not present as in returning. I think that's important. So these signs are signs of what is yet to come. And the generation which saw those signs lived to see all those signs. But they didn't live to see Christ return. Now, I'm going to have to leave this for yourself. I mean, you're sensible people. You have a Bible. You can judge for yourself. Why? Well, look at verse 32. Heaven and earth, sky and land will pass away. Right? Joe will pass away. Anything that would be representative of security will go, but not the words of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's no security in prediction. There's no security, not even in prevention, right? So the person who's fallen prey and and staked out a a claim of a particular prediction of how and when the end will come, there's no security in that. So no security in prediction, no security in prevention, but there is only security, is what we've been saying, in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. You keep your eyes on him, and whatever happens, and whenever it comes, everything will be fine. That's number one, the lesson that Jesus gives. Now, quickly, number two, the, the truth Jesus tells. Because the truth is, while Jesus did give us signs of his nearness, and you see it there, he didn't give us dates of his return. And you see, I think that if someone's like new to the Bible, and they have no like dogmatic claim to anything, and they're reading the verses that I read, surely they would sense the tension in there, right? I mean, in the beginning, it looks like it's the end, and it's kind of clear, and then you get to verse 32, and it's like, no one knows. But if you come to the text with an agenda, a kind of like undue dogmatism, then I think that would be unhelpful. There would be, to me at least, some some intellectual dishonesty about what we have collectively from verses 24 to the end there in 37. Okay, there's going to be an end. What we don't have, Jesus says, is fixed dates. What we don't have are the things that people often long for, right? But what we do have is Jesus telling us, okay, there's an end. However, the phases of all the prophetic writings and language comes out, in some ways it's like one virtual reality, whatever. The where and the when parts, we might get right, we might not get right. So we have to realize that there's these gaps in the words of Jesus. Some gaps could be years. Some gaps could be decades. Some gaps could be hundreds of years. I don't know. Some people say thousands of years. The where and the when, in one sense, is not foundational. Subsequently, Jesus here, this is what he's doing, you guys. Like a parent, right? You know this. You're telling your kid to do something. Listen, I need you to take out the garbage today, right? Please take out the garbage before I get home. No one will be home all day. You're going to have to take out the garbage. Remember, for God's sake, take out the garbage. Look at your Bible. Jesus says, verse 32, no one knows. Verse 33, you do not know. Verse 35, you do not know. So let's be absolutely clear that everyone is ignorant about the time of the return of Jesus Christ. And so don't feel bad about that because we're in good company. Look at your Bible. The angels don't know, verse 32. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself does not know. We are in good company. And we are in an incredibly large company because Jesus says, again, verse 32, no one knows. So I'm going to make the assumption that no one is everyone, right? No one knows. That's an incredibly large crowd of people. So again, Jesus doesn't know. The angels don't know. And you should not feel bad or even mad at me after, you know, the weeks that we spent in Mark 13 that you still don't know either. Why? 
Because that's good news. The good news is actually you still don't know. And if you thought you did know, then based on the words of Jesus, you would know that I have done a terrible job in Mark 13 and you would be left to the tyranny of my stupidity, right? And if a person, listen carefully, if a person is tempted to say, you know, I just really, really feel like this is it. I just feel like we are so close. I would suggest to them, Please keep that kind of thing to yourself. I mean, it really isn't helpful at all. Because how do you know? I mean, one person could say, uh, it's coming. The other guy's like, okay, you know, I got to keep watching, verse 37, but I don't know. Listen to John Calvin. It would be pride and excessive covetousness to think that we who creep on the earth would know more than the sun about the end. Right? Then those who creep on the earth, who print books and produce CDs and produce dramatic videos, who, who make, you know, some so-called new discovery. When I was growing up, it was the 10 minutes to midnight prophetic conferences, right? All saying that we know just a little bit more than Jesus and we know just a little bit more than the angels. But then Jesus comes along and what does he say? Verse 32, guys, I don't even know. I don't know the day. And I don't know the hour. And by the way, that word hour is hora, is the Greek word. And it means a certain definitive time or season of my return. I get that. No one knows a certain definitive time or season of his return. Which kind of underpins my argument about verse 30, about this generation. Because some say, you know what, we don't know the day. We don't know the day. But we can give you the generation. I'm not so sure. Even the disciples, remember this in Acts, after the resurrection, they they see the risen Christ, they come to Jesus and say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus is like, guys, really? You know, this is his answer. The Father has time and date set at his own authority, right? You just get busy with the gospel. We'll worry about that stuff later on, which, by the way, is a perfect picture of the submission of Jesus to the Father. Father, Son, this is free, by the way, Father and Son, equal in power, equal in authority, equal in glory, and yet the Son says to the Father, I submit to your truth that I don't need to know. So there's not going to be any ambiguity about the return of Jesus Christ. No one will be saying, was that Jesus? I'm not sure. Let's lay a little bit and see what happens. No. When it happens, people will know. That's verse 35. The watches of the night. I think there's four, right? The evening, the midnight, the morning number one, the rooster crows, morning number two at dawn. Those were the times a good Jew would understand what Jesus is saying. We just don't know when because we're not supposed to know when. And we should be able to live with that because Jesus did. Final point. So we had a lesson. We had a truth. Now we have a task. And that begins somewhere around, what, 33, 34 there. So, yes, we do not know when Christ will return, and yet we are not to use our ignorance as an excuse for us not to be ready. That's what Jesus is saying. In fact, the fact that we do not know, it serves as a kind of stimulus and incentiveness for our readiness. I mean, that's the idea. Be on your guard, verse 33. Remember, careful, careful with your life. Be alert. Stay awake. Why? Well, the delay can make you dull, right? The delay can make 
you dull. Who said that? Well, Jesus said that. Listen to what he said in Matthew 24. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Luke 21, again, speaking of the last days. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, right? Treating life like the life of Riley. One big vacation, one big party, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, right? You're never, you're going never, you're never gonna have enough. You don't take these things serious. Jesus is like, stop that. Those kind of things will stop you from being on guard, being careful, from being alert, and staying awake for my return. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus speaks about the end, he tells the parable of the ten virgins, right? Keep your lambs, lamps trimmed, full of oil. You better be ready, high alert all the time. Ignorant of the return, ignorant of the time of the return of Jesus Christ is not an excuse for activity. Ignorance, verse 34, look at it there. That's our incentive. Look at it. It's like a man going away. That would be Christ. He leaves his house. That would be the world. He puts his servants in charge. That would be his church. Each with their assigned task that he gives. That would be the ministry of the gospel. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Well, who's that? Well, that's all of us. That's verse 37. Everyone watch. Now, loved ones, this verse 34 is not to get us agitated about the end or very anxious, telling, you know, the, the kind of like person who gets really anxious about the end and they always think it's about to happen. And you might meet this kind of person. I, I don't know. It's not, you don't meet him as often. But when I was growing up, I met him all the time. And so you would tell them that you're a Christian and they're like, it's the end of the world. And you're like, now? And they're like, no, it's so close. I mean, it's happening. Nations are lining up. The moon's lining up. It's just happening. And you're like, how do you know? And they're like, look at the state of the world. There's earthquakes and and I can just feel it. Look what's happening to Israel. See, that's the whole 10 minutes to midnight thing. I mean, I went to those conferences. And let me tell you what happened to me. When I went to those conferences, as a Christian, it scared the bejeebas out of me. And I remember I went home to my mom and dad and started crying. Like, am I ever going to get to get married? Am I ever going to have kids? You know, I love you, mom and dad. I want all my brothers and sisters to be Christian. So there was some good in those things. It just wasn't good enough. Because what that can do is it can take you off gospel truth and to send a person in the wrong direction as it did so often. Now listen to Augustine. This is 4th century. Listen to what he says. He who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who says it's really near or he who says it's really far, but he who, whether it is near or far, awaits for it with all of his heart. It's good, right? Awaits for it with all his heart. So a person can become agitated about the end or a person can become isolated to their responsibilities, right? So this is the kind of person that says, who cares about the world? Who cares about little kids? You know, who cares about lives being messed up? Who cares about the forest burning down? Who cares about the civility in the world? Jesus is coming back. And you're like, okay, I know he's, getting, he's coming back, but where did you get the rest of that stuff? Because you didn't get it from Jesus. Look at your Bible, verses 34, 5, 6, and 7. That's a picture of Jesus. (laughs) Look at him. He leaves heaven, for heaven. Jesus leaves for heaven, but he leaves his responsibility 
to his followers. They, we Christians, have the responsibility to do what Jesus did when he walked this earth and to do what he said to do. So that our present life is, is rich with significance, if you think about it. I mean, I was, I was thinking about the person who's like, I am so bored with life. I mean, what is your problem, Christian? Our present life is rich with significance as long as we remember that we are the servants and we are not the masters. So we may behave as if our own lives and, and the church of Jesus Christ we may behave like we think that we can figure out what is acceptable and, and what is the right principles that we should live by and structure our life by. But Jesus says, look, verse 35, I am the master of the house. I am the master of the house. You are the servants. I am the master. And you know what strikes me is oftentimes when you make some kind of evangelistic p- appeal, you speak to people and you say, well, what about the whole meaning in life issue? Jesus says, our meaning in life, the reason why we are here, is actually comes from doing our master's work until the end, verse 35, until the end of our life or to the end of the world. In other words, there is a moral dimension to the response of a Christian to the teaching of Jesus here. Right? The, 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 they're not like mysterious clues to keep us always on, on, you know, on our heels. No, it's there's something that we should do before the end comes. Be on your guard, verse 9. Be alert, verse 33. Keep watch, verse 35. Don't sleep, verse 36. Watch, verse 37. So this isn't rocket science here, is it? Jesus is saying, don't fall asleep on the job. I was thinking that, and we're going to be done, I was thinking of what if somebody came here and they were like kind of new to this? Or maybe you came from another place and we never do this kind of thing. And, And they would be like, my God, would you just preach something to help me? I am so unhappy. Will you just do something and say something that can make me not be unhappy anymore? Well, I can help you. Verse 34, verse 35, keep watch because you don't know when the master of the house is coming. Keep yourself alert. Do the work of the Christian. That will give you significance. That will give you um, life meaning, life value. Who? Verse 37, everyone. Everyone. So three Friday nights ago, my wife and I had a a romantic evening at home. Don't worry, honey, this is going to be a safe story. And we were saying, okay, would you like to watch a movie? And we said yes, so we argued about that for a minute. And we finally came up with Christopher Robin, the Winnie the Pooh movie. It was a lovely movie. Watched the whole thing, cried a few times. That was me. And... (laughs) And I said, it's a Disney movie, so there could be like a post-credit scene. And I said, let's wait to the very end to see if there's a post-credit scene. There was a post-credit scene. It was great. And what it was is there was a song written by Richard Sherman, not the football player, the Disney writer. And I was thinking about this song when I was thinking about words, Jesus' words, don't stop, don't sleep, you keep watch, do the work, right? And this is the song. And I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to, like, do my best to read it. It starts out, dum-da-dum-da-dum-dum, dum-da-dum-da-dum-dum, 
And this is the words. I'm busy, busy, busy doing nothing. Doing nothing. That's the life for me. Oh, when I'm doing nothing, I'm busy doing something. Something that suits me to a T. Because I'm busy, busy doing nothing. I find I never have the time to rest. Being busy doing nothing. I'm busy doing something. Doing nothing is the something I do best. Do you hear that? We can't be caught like that. We can't be the kind of people like, I am busy doing nothing. I'm busy doing my own thing. I'm busy doing whatever I think is right. No, I am busy doing the master's work. That's the point. That's the whole point of chapter 13. Last word, watch who, everyone, because you don't know when the return will come. So here's your remedy. Hands to the plow. Busy for Jesus. Master says do this, I do this. That's how I will approach the end. Let's pray. If you have questions, I'm going to hang out here just for a minute or two to try to answer them. Father, will you please help us to not trust in ourselves? Help us not to trust in our own predictions about the end, but just be settled in our minds about the words of Jesus. We don't know. He doesn't know. The angels don't know. But what we do know is that we have forgiveness of sins only in Christ. We have the promise of eternal life only in Christ. We have assignments given to us by Christ. We have assurances from Christ. We have love and peace and hope at levels that we do not deserve in and of ourselves, but Jesus Christ has given us. We will never know the end time exactly. But we will never be able to exist without knowing your love and your grace and your truth by your spirit through your son. So Father, will you please have mercy on us as we leave this place and may Jesus Christ be our vision, be the song in our heart, the melody in our head and keep us busy doing something for Jesus, for Jesus' sake, amen. God bless you.